We continue our study of the book of Hebrews in chapter 5 and verse 1. And we'll probably cover the majority of probably all of this chapter. Hebrews 5 begins with introducing the idea of Christ as the high priest. Then you get toward the end of the chapter, he discusses the idea of maturity, spiritual maturity, of the necessity of maturing as Christians. But in chapter 5 and verse 1, we read, For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason uh, hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sins. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. And we'll stop there for now. But he's already given us several um, qualifications or characteristics of a high priest. And then he goes on in the next few verses to talk about Christ and how Christ meets those characteristics and qualifications. When we read this, we have an understanding of who the high priest was and what he did. But at the same time, I think it's very difficult for us. Really, that's an understatement to me. It's extremely difficult for us to really have an understanding of how much importance the Jews would place on the high priest. And think about the fact that it was the high priest and only the high priest who went into the most holy place of the temple once a year on the Day of Atonement. He was the only one to do that, was the high priest. Think about the high priest as he would offer sacrifices for people's sins. Think about the high priest as he was the one who presided over the Jewish court of the Sanhedrin. Think about the high priest as he was in many ways thought of as a mediator between man and God. And when you understand something about the importance that they placed on the high priest, being mediator between them and God, the one who offered sacrifices on their behalf, he was the one who went into the uh, most holy place of the temple once a year. And, and then now we get to Hebrews 5, and now we have this idea of, well, there's a different high priest now. The ones that you've looked at all of these hundreds of years through the descendants of Aaron, uh, now we're going to have a different high priest, someone else. And he's going to be very similar in some ways, but you're also going to see some differences. And again, I think it's very, very hard for us to grasp the significance of this and to really understand how the Jews at the time must have felt when they said, listen, all of this is being done away with. And it's really, I think the book of Hebrews is in many ways leading up to eventually what will take place in A.D. 70 as Jerusalem is destroyed. The Jewish records were destroyed, along with it, of course. And you saw the old system of Judaism as far as temple worship and all of that portion of the Judaic system kind of fading away, and it's gone. And a difficult thing, I think, for them to grasp. But he tells us in verse 1, for every high priest taken from among men. There's one of your qualifications there. He said it's taken from among men. Well, your high priest under the old law met that qualification, being descendants of Aaron, part of the Aaronic priesthood there. Christ, 
was taken from among men, of course, and able to serve as high priest because he did walk on this earth. He lived in the flesh. Uh, remember John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Keep on reading of John 1, and you get to about verse 14, and there you find the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. In Him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, Colossians 2, 9. And nothing lesser than God in the flesh, but He, as the high priest, was taken from among men. He's ordained for men in all things pertaining to God. He's ordained for men. And so there He's serving men as high priest. The high priest under the old law actually served men. And think about when he offered the sacrifices on their behalf. Christ is here to came here to serve man, not to be served. Remember, he said, I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve and give my life a ransom for many. So he came to serve God, uh, to serve man. He is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now, there's a distinction I think in verse 1 that may not be easily seen but when it says he may offer both gifts and sacrifices those are two different things and it says gifts and sacrifices for sins I believe for sins there modifies the sacrifices in other words there were some things that people offered to God simply as an offering remember the meal offering and the different offerings they would, would bring to God and give to God but particularly the sacrifices for sins here uh, these weren't some of the uh, gifts that they brought to God weren't necessarily for sin. Some of them were thank offerings and things of that nature, but you had sacrifices for sin. Remember, sin always involves a shedding of blood. Since the sin took place in the garden with Adam and Eve, ever since it's, it's involved and necessitated the shedding of blood. So they offered gifts. Again, it could be different types, and often to express. Thanksgiving, but they offered sacrifices specifically for man's sin. But the high priest would offer these sacrifices. Christ offers the sacrifices for sin as well. But here's the big distinction is that the uh, priest under the old law would continually offer sacrifices. Because their, their sacrifices, I think more than anything else, brought man into a recognition of his sin. But it really couldn't provide uh, forgiveness of sin in its reality. You know, sometimes people get into the discussion, uh, well, what about these people who lived under the Old Testament? Were they forgiven? Were they forgiven of their sin? Well, yes, they were forgiven. Uh, but on the other hand, we haven't gotten this far yet. We'll see in Hebrews 9.15, when Christ died uh, on the cross, he shed his blood for those who lived under the old law as well as those who lived under the new law. So anyone who was forgiven, no matter when you lived, whether it's the mosaical period of time or the uh, or patriarchal before that, or whether our time today, anyone who's ever been forgiven of their sins was forgiven because of the blood of Christ. So were they forgiven? Yes, they were forgiven, but you might think of it as they were forgiven in prospect of the coming of Christ. Um, and Christ is different in that he sacrificed himself. Something the uh, priest under the old law wouldn't do, of course, couldn't do. But while they would bring sacrifices for the people, Christ actually offered himself as a sacrifice for the people. And, of course, Christ offered himself as a sacrifice one time. It wasn't something that needed to be repeated over and over and over. Remember, I think when we introduced the book of Hebrews, we talked about one word you find throughout the book is better. Better. 
And one of the things that's better in the book of Hebrews is better sacrifice. Of course, we're talking about Christ being our high priest. It's one of the other things you read is better priesthood. Better priesthood, better sacrifice, better temple, better covenant, better promises. Everything about it is better. And so uh, he starts off in chapter 5 telling him, listen, now we have a high priest who is better. And he's taken from among men, verse 1. He's serving men in verse 1. And he offers gifts and sacrifices for sin. Christ actually offering himself as a sacrifice. Verse 2, really you see another uh, characteristic of the high priest who can have compassion on the ignorant. And certainly no one demonstrated compassion toward others any better than Christ did. But he had compassion on them because he understood their situation. He understood that they were lost in the need of help spiritually. I'm not real sure. I should have uh, maybe looked a little closer. I'm not real sure how other translations may uh, translate uh, chapter, uh, chapter 5 there in verse 2 rather than ignorant. I'm not sure what some other translations may say. Um, but uh, some of them will simply say um, uh, misguided in verse 2 for out of the way. But notice in verse 2 who can have compassion on the ignorant there uh, the New American Standard says ignorant as well. It will say he, he can deal gently with the ignorant. He has compassion on the ignorant. He understands their situation, understands their need. It tells us something about God, though. God is interested in us. You know, God cares about us. Some would have the idea, the deists have the idea that basically God created the world and wound it up maybe like you would a watch and then just, just stood back and let it go and let's see what happens. But that's a, that's a wrong idea of God. He's very interested in us and he's compassionate toward us. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way. Uh, again, the New American Standard there will say, rather than those who are out of the way, it will say those are misguided. Some translations may say misled or in error. They're out of the way, meaning they're, they've strayed from the narrow way. They're outside of the narrow way now. They're being misled. They're being misguided. Uh, and of course, in large, in large part, of course, because of their ignorance. That he himself also is compassed with infirmity. Infirmity, in verse 2, you could look at that as a weakness. Uh, Christ took on a human nature, and he was tempted. So he understands what it means to be tempted. He understands what it means to live on this earth and go through all the things that people go through. And he may not, some people say, well, Christ didn't experience every sin that we experienced. I mean, he wasn't tempted exactly like we are uh, tempted. And he may not experience something in exactly the same way we are tempted, but nonetheless, he was tempted as we are tempted. And basically, the, when you look at the three avenues of temptation, as far as the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, every sin falls into one of those. And it's true with Christ, or every temptation falls into one of those. And it's true with Christ's temptation as well. Verse 3, and by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself to offer sins. Uh, to offer for sins, rather, that is to offer sacrifice for sins. But in verse 3 it says, by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself. That's something the high priest had to do. Because he was not sinless. The high priest was not sinless. So the high priest would not only offer sacrifices, but for others, 
but he had to offer sacrifices for himself as well. That's the characteristics of the high priest under the old law. But that's a big distinction here between the priest under the old law and Christ. Because Christ offered sacrifice for the people, verse 3. But he didn't have to offer sacrifice for himself. He didn't offer sacrifices for his own sins. He was tempted, but yet without sin. So here you see a big distinction. Verse 4, no man taketh his honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. When it says he that is called of God, it has the idea of he that is designated by God. Uh, designated by God. Again, you see that in verse uh, 10 as well, where it says called of God. Yes. Um, you, you know, you, uh, when I read from the King James, it says uh, infirmity in verse 2. It says weakness in the New American Standards. You, you said what as well? A weakness? It says that too, but it says, uh, it's, it, the first thing it says is feebleness. Yeah. And then it says feebleness. Feebleness. Feebleness of body or mind. Uh, feebleness of body or mind. So it may be. Uh, maybe maybe refer to something physical and it's physical weakness or maybe refer to mental as well. Yeah. Feeble is mine. Uh, it also says moral frailty. It, to me, when you take all the words that it means, it just means imperfect. Imperfect. Put all this together. You know, yeah, I mean, we started out talking about how much importance the Jews placed on the high priest, and they did. But at the same time, what you're reading here, and put all that together, infirmity. How do you want to look at infirmity there? Is infirmity, weakness, uh, frailty, however you want to define it. It's like put all of that together. Doesn't it help emphasize, and whether it's physical or mental, doesn't it help emphasize the idea that he was, he was in spite of all of his importance, and in spite of the role he played, he was a man, wasn't he? With all the with all of the uh, shortcomings that a man any man would have, I suppose, and that's why uh, he we see here he offered sacrifices even for himself, and not just others. Now, again, think about the Jews at the time; they're hearing this, and we're going to have another high priest now, and this one's going to be better than what you've had. Uh, I, I still think it's probably a difficult concept for them to grasp. Something's been passed on for hundreds of years verse 4 no man takes this honor to himself but he that is called of God as was Aaron uh, you know you're, you're, it's like you're calling of God beginning with Aaron and then his lineage you're called of God it's not something that man takes upon himself to do or he can't just declare himself high priest you know and say he's going to do it that's why you see in verse 5 so also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. So the point of verse 5, even Christ himself was high priest because he was designated by God to be the high priest. He was called high priest by God, but he didn't take that upon himself. And he said also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of 
uh, Melchizedek, what's the other place? Some say it's a reference back actually to what he said uh, earlier in chapter 3, but said so, um, verse 6, as he said also in another place, thou art a priest forever after order of Melchizedek, and that's actually a reference, maybe a reference to what was said in chapter 3, but it's probably a, no doubt a reference to Psalm 110 and verse 4 as well. Where he said, uh, you'll be a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, we're going to not say much about Melchizedek right now because it deals with him a lot in chapter 7. And uh, if we get in too much now, I think it would kind of be a lot of redundancy. So he deals with a lot, particularly uh, some at the latter part of chapter 6, but especially when you get to chapter 7 and 8, he deals with a Melchizedek, and we'll talk about it then. Now, verse 7, And who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, with strong crying and tears on him that was able to save him from death, and was heard and that he feared. Uh, if you look at verse 7, and then especially in conjunction with verse 8, 9, talking about his death, then it seems most likely that verse 7 is a reference to the time Christ was praying in the garden before his death, just just prior to his death. Uh, a lot of people will take that position, and it seems to make sense. I think it's a good logical position. In verse 7, Who in the days of his flesh, that is now while Christ was living in the flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death. So this is no doubt a reference to the time of Christ is praying in the garden. He prays with... Prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears. Remember the intensity of Christ's prayer in the garden? And the Bible talks about he sweated as if it were drops of blood. Uh, probably really were if you study the medical condition that would bring that about. And he's crying to God and crying out to God, his Father, who was able to save him from death. And it's interesting in verse 7 that he says his prayer was heard. Even though he wasn't saved from death, his prayer was heard. In verse 8, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 7, it was heard in that he feared, not being afraid with fright or terror, but he feared in that he went to God, his Father, in reverence and piety. And along, if you're going to talk about piety and fearing God and piety and reverence, I think you'd have to include the word submission in that as well. Remember, he says, not my will, but thy will. But he says it's 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 uh, it's interesting to me that Christ would pray what he did. When you really study his prayer, a lot of been dis- uh, discussion has been uh, brought forth as to what did he mean when he w- so let this cup pass. What was the cup? You know, some have put forth different ideas. Maybe it was his emotional agony prior to the cross. Some would say. Some would say it was his suffering while he was actually on the cross. Uh, some would say that he's simply praying that he doesn't give in to spiritual death at the time, if you might want to call it. In other words, he's simply praying that he himself would stay faithful to his father throughout all this. But he prays, you remember, he prays if if there's any other way. And when he says, if there's any other way, what did he mean when he said, if there's any other way? I think he's really saying, if there's any other way to save man, if there's any other way to accomplish this, if there's any other way to save man, uh, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. But he tells us in verse 7, 
Christ prayed to God with strong crying and tears under the one who was able to save him from death. And we know he still died, but yet it tells us in verse 7, and he was heard. Christ's prayer, Christ was heard. His prayer was heard, wasn't it? Even though he still died. I think, he, I think his prayer was heard. Basically, God's answer was, there is no other way. There is no other way to save man. When you think about this, it's sometimes if, um, if we're not careful, we may have the idea that used to, under the old law, the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin, but it can't anymore. We have to have the blood of Christ. But in reality, it never did. It never did take away man's sin. And again, his prayer was heard, but the answer was there is no other way. There's no other way to save man. If there is another way, he wouldn't have died, would he? If there is another way, he wouldn't have given his son to die, would he? Yes, sir. he heard his son now his he prays if there's any other way let this pass let this cup pass from me and he heard his prayer but yet it didn't change anything and the death still took place didn't it now it is interesting when you read about uh, his prayer uh, Christ did hear him and I can't think of the specific scripture reference right now to it but when Christ prayed does it not say that the angels came and ministered to him. So that tells us that when Christ prayed, God the Father was not apathetic. And he did hear him. And he did answer his prayer. Even though he died, the answer basically is there is no other way. But I'm going to help you through this. And he has the angels minister to him. In what way exactly, I don't know. But the angels came and ministered unto him after his prayer, the Bible tells us. Somehow they strengthened him somehow, I guess, to allow him to endure what he had to endure. Is that not a lesson for us, though? Why should we think, because things aren't necessarily changing the way we want them to change, why should that lead us to think, I guess God's not hearing my prayer? Uh, he heard Christ and yet didn't change the, the death. It wasn't taken away. But along with that, Christ will help us through it, won't he? Won't God help us through our ordeals of life? He's not apathetic. He's a high priest. We've already read. He's a high priest who serves with compassion. And he cares. And sometimes we may have an obstacle in our life or a hardship that really, maybe it can't be removed. Or at least it, it, it's not that God won't even necessarily, but maybe it can't be removed. Or maybe it can't be removed quickly. Or maybe it can't be removed or dealt with the way we would like it to be dealt with. 
But nonetheless, God will help us through it. And he, he may say, well, you know, I, here's, this is the answer to your prayer. And then I'm going to help you through it. I'm going to help you deal with it, help you through it. And though he were a son, verse 8, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Well, Christ, even before he went to the cross, he was obedient, was he not? Uh, at one point, he says, "I must do. I must always. I must always do those things that please my Father." Tells us in verse eight, he learned obedience. So he learned it. Well, he already knew what obedience was. So he didn't really learn it in that sense. Now, now I know what it means to be obedient. I didn't before, so I've learned it. It's ideal. I think he's learning it now in a different way. It's simply that he's experienced it firsthand. Uh, obedience. See, we are to obey God when it's easy. But we are also to obey God when it's difficult. Sometimes even for us, it can be difficult to obey God. Not to the extent, I don't necessarily, that we're going to give our lives or lose our life because of it. But times there are times when it can be difficult to obey God, but yet He still expects us to do it, doesn't He? And here He became obedient he was obedient, rather. And because of his obedience, he learned obedience. That is, he learned it now by first-hand experience. He, really, it has the idea of he experienced it. He experienced it by the things which he suffered. He knew now what it really meant. Because he was dying as a man, remember. This was God in the flesh. But nonetheless, he was in a physical body dying as a man. And now he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. His obedience cost him something, didn't it? It cost him a great deal of suffering. Ultimately, it cost him his life. Sometimes obedience may cost us something. I, I believe that. Um, I, this is just a little side note, but we talk about Christians not being persecuted today the way they have been in the past. I sometimes wonder, are we not persecuted as others have been because we're not doing what they did. We're not speaking out like they often spoke out. We're not taking a stand like we ought to for different issues when they come up. We're not being more vocal. We're not being heard as we ought to be. And maybe that's why we're not being persecuted as others have in the past. Obedience uh, often entails a price. And sometimes uh, God asks us to do things that are hard. And he wants us to do them anyway. I, I know God's never asked me to do anything that was harder than it was for Christ to go to the cross. I know that. Uh, so he learned, he learned obedience now, the things which he suffered. He experienced it and he understood it. I think he probably, even though he was God, I, I think he probably had a maybe, a maybe a better understanding now of what it meant to obey to the point that you suffer because of it. And being made perfect, verse 9, he became the author of eternal salvation and all them that obey him. Being made perfect, well, it's not sinless. He was already sinless. He wasn't made sinless. He was sinless all of his life. Remember, perfect has the ideal of mature, now complete. Now that Christ died, he reached his intended purpose for coming to earth. Remember, he said at one point, I didn't come to serve, uh, or I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. And he became the author of eternal salvation. That is, he's the source of our salvation unto all them that obey him. And again, you've seen it already in the book of Hebrews how belief 
and obedience are often parallel with one another. Called of God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing you are dull of hearing. And um, we may just go ahead and stop right there in verse 12. We're at a pretty good stopping point. That's a good place to pick up, I think, with our next lesson. So we're going to go ahead and stop at uh, Hebrews chapter 5. And verse 12, and the next lesson we'll, we'll begin at verse 12 of chapter 5.